Well, hello, everybody. Everybody speaking over each other. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Lanky Guys. This is the Word on the Hill. I am Scott Powell. And I am Father Peter Mosset, and I am presently located in the hottest, sweatiest place that I have been in in a really long time. I'm really happy you said hottiest. <laughs> you did, did you, you don't mean haughtiest. Oh, no, no, I do not mean haughtiest. I mean, like, dude, I am in Ave Maria, Florida at the new, Focus New Staff Training. Dude, man. Shout out to all you guys. Dude, a shout out to uh, Lauren and to the QGI team and to, dude, there have been a lot of people who have come up to me and they're like, dude, I heard your voice. You're Father Peter from Lincoln Guys. Really? I listen to Lincoln. Yeah, no, they like recognize the shepherd's voice, dude. Oh, man, that's awesome. Well, and they smell him too. Isn't that what Pope Francis said to smell like the shepherd? Uh, no, the, the shepherd should smell oh. the sheep. <laughs> smell like the sheep. Don't just smell them. <laughs> Dude, I will tell you, I smell horrible. I smell like onions up here, man. Dude, this is why the media keeps getting him wrong. It's this conversation right here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dude. I'm sorry. Did you just say you smell like onions? I do, man. Like okay. I don't. I don't even know. I can't control it. I've taken showers. I use deodorant, but I just smell like onions. Well, it's just a day in the life, man. <laughs> it's onion onion talk with the lanky guys. Onion talk with the lanky guys, man. Well, All right, dude. We should jump in because you got a you got a session to give. Yeah, you're dude, uh, you're in charge of that whole conference down there. No, I, no, I'm I know, a, I know. We I'm got a, stuff to do. I'm a priest facilitator for mm. a clergy or chaplain um, focus interaction. So we're just looking at how do we improve the relationship between focus and the chaplains. And it's dude, it's going really well. It's like my favorite thing to do is like talk to people about how um, to improve stuff. Like it's just that's design awesome. process is so cool. Mm, that's very cool. I'm glad they chose you for that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that uh, I, I, I feel very chosen and that is, I, it is they who chose me, not I who chose them. Very good. All right, shall we jump in? It is the 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Is that right? Yeah, Yeah. 13th Sunday. You better believe it is. All right, so our first reading is coming from the book of Wisdom, chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, and then jumping ahead all the way to chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. Yeah, and then we go into the psalm response. You probably Um, do. And that is Psalm 30, Hmm. uh, and it's uh, verse 2. And Mm. then verse 3, and then verse 4 and 5, and then verse 10, 11, 12. Mm. That's a lot. And then 13. Uh, And 13 as well, (laughs) just for good measure. (laughs) Just Yeah, it's funny because I don't see 13 in there in my my thing, but that's how it goes. Well, I don't see verse 3, so we're all even. (laughs) All right. Uh, Our second reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, 9, 13 through 15. I know that's awesome, and then we start to get into there's a uh, the the gospel today is from Mark chapter five. Now um, it's a big one. There's yeah there's a, there's a choice. You can do option A, which is twenty one to forty three, or the short version, which is twenty one to twenty four, thirty five B to forty three. And and what uh, do you guys think we're gonna choose? The short one. Come on, Father Peter, that's not even funny. I know, dude. We not, I, I I told the lectors and and Deacon Marty. I said, you know, if there's ever an option for something that's longer, you always choose the longer one. <laughs> no matter what it is. No matter what it is, man. Because I don't want to. I'm no half stepping, man. I'm I'm in. Option A: footlong hot dogs. Everything. Anything that has the option for it. Dude, I had a footlong chili dog the other day. It was very good. You're kidding me. No, I, and and it was it was wow. tasty, delicious. 
That's unlike wonderful. the hot dogs in Buffalo, though, man. Buffalo, New York? Yeah, Salem's. Is that a thing? Yeah, dude. Salem's smokehouse dogs are literally, I would eat them over bratwurst any day. I almost bought some I, and had them come in um, on a dry ice. Is it better than Mustard's Last Stand? Uh, oh, dude, I will, I'm going to buy some on dry ice and, and share them with you. Mustard's Last Stands them. are phenomenal, aren't they? Yeah, that's a boulder. A shout out to a, a boulder. Institution. An institution. I want to be the exclusive dealer of Salem's hot dogs in Boulder. (laughs) We can sell them at the coffee shop. (laughs) In the the pastry case. (laughs) Uh, Dude, I am all about that. Oh, that's the worst. All right, we should talk about the readings. Okay, I am am once again forlorn, Father Peter. Tell me, why? Oh, because I want... uh, I'm... 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 Mm-mm. I was reading through these readings, reading through the readings, and I was trying to figure out what the con- what the uh, what the connection here is. And yeah. I'm sure there's a number of connections. Yeah. But then I read the very last line of the gospel, and I'm like, that is the key to everything. The seemingly most random line, one of the most random seeming lines in all of Scripture. Dude, let's just I became start convinced. There. I well, should we read the whole gospel though? No, no, no. Just that last line. Let's. I mean, Mm-mm. it doesn't have the potency without the whole thing. So let's just read. We don't. We can talk about it in a minute. But I just. I, I got to read this because it's. It's too much. It's the too whole much. gospel. Yeah. Well, and then we won't read it when we come back to it. Okay. Sounds good, just, man. Just, I'm, I'm going to put my seatbelt on. I'm ready. Okay. So here's the gospel, and so we're starting there, which is crazy. But there's an operative thing here. Okay. Um, Jesus crossed the, the Sea of Galilee, right? So he crossed again the boat. He went to the other side, and this huge crowd gathered around him. He stayed close to the sea. And so he's preaching, right? He's on the Sea of Galilee. One of the synagogue officials, a guy named Jairus, came forward. Seeing him, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she may get well and live. And so Jesus went off with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed upon him, which just seems awkward. This huge crowd just kind of fought. I'm thinking of that scene in Forrest Gump when he's just running. And then there's that huge crowd just kind of behind him a few feet. Totally. So that's what I see. Um, And then we get, so Mark does this weird thing where... um, Mark, it, the technical term is called intercalations, but Mark has these things that we call Mark and sandwiches all over the place. <laughs> so this thing that Mark does, he will be telling a story and then randomly insert another story in between finishing the first story. Yeah. So he sandwiches something together. So that's this is a case of that. So Jesus is going off to heal this uh, synagogue official's daughter. And then all of a sudden there was this woman afflicted, afflicted with hemorrhages for 12 years. And we, we kind of know the story, right? The woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years. She touches him. She, she gets healed. Jesus figures mm-hmm. it out and says, who touched out. me? Yeah. And then we come back to the healing of the synagogue official. So while he was still speaking, presumably to her, the people from the synagogue official's house, they arrive and they're like, well, you're too late. Your daughter's already died. So don't don't bother with this teacher any longer. Why bother the teacher any longer? Disregarding the message that was reported, Jesus said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid. Just have faith. So these people come back. They're like, it's too late. She's dead. And Jesus is like, nope, don't be afraid. Have faith. He did not allow anyone to accompany him inside except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they arrived at the house of the synagogue official, he caught sight of a commotion and people were weeping and wailing loudly. So he went and said to them, what is this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but she's asleep. And they ridiculed him and he put them all out. I love that line because he's like, no, no, she's just sleeping. And they're all like, you're an idiot. She's dead. They ridicule him. And somehow in the midst of their ridicule, though, he's got the power to send them all out of the house. He's the one being mocked. Ekbalon, which is like literally balo is like almost an argument. Like the dude exerted power. 
Yeah, it's it's and they listen and they recognize it. So they they put them all out. And then he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he entered the room where the child was. He took the child by the hand and said to her, uh, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. The girl, a child of 12, arose immediately and walked around. And at that, they were utterly astounded. He gave strict orders that no one should know this. And then he said that somebody should get her something to eat. Because <laughs> she's, she's probably hungry from being dead. And I was Dude, just reading. I, I was wondering about it. I just got to be honest. Like, I was like, man, like, okay, give her something. It's like so funny. It's the key to everything, I think. I think it's the, the string that ties all these readings together. Okay, so so what do we do now? Okay. I don't, I don't so know. So now we I'm, go back. Okay, we now, go back I to want you, I want you to hold on to that. So so this huge, beautiful, profound story, a series, two of Jesus' most important miracles, and it ends with this line, hey, give her something to eat. And then you're like, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You're like, what? That's yeah. a weird point to end. Why, why did Mark <laughs> include that? Get this okay. girl something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Get her a sandwich. Get this girl a sandwich or something. So we go back to wisdom. So now our first reading, wisdom. Um, oh man, I, I, I hope I can articulate what is in my head and my heart because this makes sense in my head. So yeah. wisdom, here's what we need to know about wisdom. Wisdom is one of what's called the deuterocanonical books. So it, it's, it's, um, it's not in most Jewish and Protestant Bibles because, yeah, because well, it's written for the Greek diaspora. You don't have an original yeah. Hebrew version of it. Yeah, so we believe that this was actually written um, probably in the time of uh, maybe in Alexandria in Egypt, maybe during the reign of the Greeks. Um, you know, but when when the Jews are suffering pretty greatly, they've lost the temple, they've been scattered all over the world. It's just pri- you know maybe a century prior to the time of Jesus or so. Um, and in that context, and wisdom, the book of wisdom is often attributed to either Solomon or Solomon's friends. Yeah. Remember, Solomon was the one, you know, to have been known for his wisdom. And so he kind of passes down these, these kind of proverbs, basically. But really, here's the key to the whole book of wisdom. The whole book of wisdom is a book about creation. And I think all of this is really applicable in light of the, the Pope's new encyclical that just came out last week, yeah. which I've been I've been given interviews about, which which is exciting. People want to talk to me this week, and they'll yeah, so, oh, forget about me next week. Somebody somebody actually came up to me after mass, and they were like, "I was so excited to hear you preach about the encyclical, and you didn't do it. I'm upset with you." And I was like, "I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh boy." Well, but that's the thing. So creation, uh, the the Book of Wisdom is all about the Book of uh, is all about creation, and basically that God's kingship is most clearly seen in creation itself, right in the natural world, and especially with these people, these these Israelites who've lost their nation, they've lost their temple, they've lost what it means to the, the trappings of Judaism. The answer that wisdom gives is, look, if you want to know if God is still king, just look at the created world. It shows Mm. forth his glory. It's enough for you to see that. Even if you can't see the temple and the king and your land and all these things, you still know he's there because you can just open your eyes. Yeah, and, Um, and, and he's saying in the reading, it says all the creatures of the world are wholesome. Like you have to know that there is a purpose for all of creation. Yes, and in that light... Then when we get to what our reading is, it says, God did not make death. So this is a reading all about death, which, okay, yeah, there's the service level connection to the, the girl who dies in, in the gospel. But it says, God did not make death, nor does he rejoice in the destruction of the living. For he fashioned all things that they might have being. And the creatures of the world are wholesome. There is not a destructive drug among them, nor any domain of the netherworld on earth. For justice is undying. For God formed man to be imperishable. The image of his own nature he made him. But by the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and those who belong to his company experience it. So in other words, 
being is good death is bad so if here's here's what i took from the first reading it's really metaphysical actually it's so metaphysical but it's so practical too because how many times have you and i don't know i i don't think you've you've said this but i mean i've been to funerals and stuff before and you know when people are mourning for death which is a hard thing to do i feel like what you often hear is something like well you know death is just a part of life and it's just a part of the natural cycle and that's just how it goes and that's not the Christian view on death. We don't look at death and we're like, well, it's just a part of life. That's just kind of what happens. The idea of death is that, look, death ought to have not been. Death is um, the result of sin. Death is not plan A for God. God does not rejoice in death. And just to prove that to us, he became flesh, died, and rose again to show that, look, death actually has no power. Death is not, for the Christian, an ordinary, natural part of life. It should not be here. We are made to live. We are made for being. We are made for eternity. And we will have bodies again someday in heaven. We believe in all those things. So this idea that the readings are beginning with is that the material world matter is good. It's profoundly good. Being is better than not being. Creatures are better than no creatures. Creation is better than nothing. It is what God wanted. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So what kind of what you're saying is that um, we live in a material world, and, and I am, I a, am a, a material, material girl. girl. Oh, I'm sorry that I went there. <laughs> no, it's it's really profound. Well, you know, it was actually playing in my head before you said it. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know you, what that says about me. Yeah, I don't either. But like, no, that's 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 right on. I mean, and, and this goes and like, what is the temptation that is constant throughout theology is to go and say spiritual good, material bad. Oh we, yeah, totally. We, must just become more spiritual and this will work out. No, we actually have to become more material and more spiritual at the same time. We have to become sacramental. And that's what's so great about being Catholic is we actually use material things to show forth God's glory. He uses it and we were able to participate, right? You use bread and wine and water and oil and smoke and our knees and our feet and all of these are a part of the liturgy. Yes. Because they're all good. So, I mean, really, the, the idea of the whole book of wisdom is that all of creation is small s sacramental. It shows forth God's glory. It's a visible sign of this invisible reality. So that that's good. So, um, I mean, Which, and I'm not trying to give away the ending, but I mean, this is pointing, I think, the, 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 the idea that matter and being are so good points us toward the really profound and strange way that the gospel ends. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's really important. It is. <laughs> okay, let's get into the psalm then. And the psalm, I think, is also really cool. So it begins by saying, I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. I will extol you for you drew me near. So I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. I mean, I think the first connection that we see is, well, wisdom was just saying how death was not meant to be a part of the human experience. It was not plan A. That wasn't what we were supposed to have. Which, and now which, the psalm says, I've rescued, I've been rescued. Which, from what? Which, well, from death. There's a section in the middle. So what happens is that we go from 115, chapter 1, verse 15, to chapter 2, verse 23 in wisdom. And in, uh -huh. the mi and then in that middle intervening section, he actually is laying out what does death look like in a human life? And it's, Oh, you're right. And so he, he's going through and he's like, it's manipulation. It's um, a material obsession. It is, uh, it is, it, it is the pr making the world and material matter a primary over the reality of that we are made for God. 
and so it's it's actually really and it just outlines wickedness but at the yeah. same time proclaiming that everything is good but that it can be totally manipulated that's why um when we say you have not let my foes rejoice over me what we can actually define what foes look like in this in this um wisdom of solomon and it's it's really it's really pretty intense it's like um you know like um uh uh yeah, I can't really uh, talk about it because I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to read Greek and I didn't translate this very well. Okay, oh, so. that's all right. Well, oh, yeah, I mean, expense, and... people who are satiated by expensive perfumes and mm. uh, hastily with wine and and they like but like rosebuds they will wilt and then they're arrogant oh, and they leave leave behind them everywhere they go signs of revelry. They did not believe and leave no trace. So, dude, I'm not trying to split hairs here, but this is what the Pope said in his encyclical. He mm. said, when we are ensnared by material things and consumerism, that is going to lead to our destruction. I mean, he, he could be speaking straight out of the old, out of the book of wisdom. In it's, relation it's funny. to the psalm, that's awesome. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. The world is totally flipping out over Pope Francis's encyclical, either because they're trying to use it for political ends or they're trying to show how Pope Francis is actually crazy and he's against everything and da-da-da-da-da. It, it's, it's a document. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to read it, but I read it fairly thoroughly. It's a document about human selfishness. It's showing, look, when we make ourselves gods over God, we will ruin everything. That's the problem, and that's at the heart of everything. We need to be holy, which means we recognize there is a God above us. And when we make ourselves God, when we, like wisdom says, chase after the fancy perfumes, when we chase after the newest, nicest car, when that becomes our God, when, when money becomes our God. When we manipulate the God, poor to make money. Absolutely. Then we destroy the natural world. And this is what the Psalm, this is what the whole book of wisdom is about. It says literally we creation itself we will be rewarded for faithfulness to God and creation itself will punish us when we reject God. The created world actually is a part of God's system for salvation. It it plays a massive role and that's what the pope is saying. Which is actually very beautiful and he says look there's different ways that we can approach this and talk about how to deal with it. But the reality is the reality. We are very selfish. And when we make ourselves gods, then those four relationships that you and I talk about so much, this relationship between us and God and us and ourselves, us and the people around us and us and the rest of the created world, they all crumble because our priorities aren't straight. And all mm -hmm. of those relationships break down. And that's yeah. what the psalm, and that's what the, all of these four readings are actually getting at. And what, what's also cool about Psalm 30 so a little context on Psalm 30, it's, it's entitled in most Bibles, uh, a Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the house of David. Um, so, which means there's two kind of pieces of historical connection. Um, it's the, a song of the dedication of the house of David. So we could sort of imagine that maybe as, as the big palace that he built. But I remember David finally was able to settle all of Israel after all of these years of running from Saul, being trying to escape for his life and being you know, sought after and people want to kill him. Finally, he has a respite from that. Finally, God saves him. Finally, he's able to rest and breathe. And in response to that, he says, I will praise you, Lord, for you have created me. And he, he, he pens this psalm. The other thing about this psalm is it's traditionally it was the psalm that was recited at Hanukkah, at the dedication of the temple. And the thing that I think is kind of cool about that, remember, what was so if this is the psalm that they would recite every year on the dedication of the temple, remember, what was the temple supposed to represent? Do you remember? Uh, all of creation. 
Yeah, it's a microcosm for creation. So originally all of creation was supposed to be a temple, but we abused it. We misused it. We were selfish. We, we ignored God. So that became broken. But eventually we built a temple to represent what all of creation was supposed to be. So you can't separate the idea of a dedication of a temple, thanking God for rescuing us without the idea of a new creation embedded in that whole theology. It's looking ahead for the day when all of creation will look like what we see in this temple. Created, the created world will make sense again. We will be able to interact with it the way that we're supposed to, and God's glory will be clearly seen in it, which it is to a certain degree, as the, as the Book of Wisdom says. Does that make sense, or am I just saying things? No, it makes a ton of sense. It's beautiful. I am... Um... I just uh, am thinking, you know, how, how to transform from the moments of our wickedness into this ability to, to like, 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 uh, why is the temple so significant? Because it's actually taking the material world and transforming it into the ordered reality. And, and yeah. as we, as we hear, even in the Psalm, it says, um, sing praises to the Lord, you, his saints, give thanks to his holy name for his anger is for but a moment, but his favors for a lifetime. Like sometimes we, the Lord throws down on us and he actually <laughs> has to get, uh, do a real correction. That's painful, but it's only for a moment. And, and it's to get rid of the, that intervening stuff where we do just delight in the things of the world rather than in the things of God. Well, and, and that actually is a perfect segue, I think, into the second reading. And I think, I think we talked about this last week. So the the whole idea of second Corinthians, remember Paul's on the defensive because the Corinthians are probably really ticked off about what he said in first Corinthians when he called them babies and excommunicated people. And you know, they're mad. So they're like, well, you're nothing. You are, you, you suffer too much. You look like garbage to us. You don't sound very good. Therefore you can't be a legitimate apostle. So Paul spends the majority of the letter saying, no, my sufferings actually show how united I actually am to Christ. But Paul gives two challenges in second Corinthians. Did we talk about that last week? Uh, I don't remember. Well, the two things he challenges them to are number one, to be willing to break off the ties that they have to the non-Christians who are kind of bringing them down, the bad influences in their lives. They're nasty the, friends. They're nasty, nasty friends. And then the second encourage, um, what did I say? Not encouragement. The second uh, thing he thing he asked them to do is to take up this collection, this financial collection for the church in Jerusalem, which is suffering, which the Corinthians do not want to do. Oh, I remember that part. Yes, absolutely. All of which is speaking to the fact that what the Corinthians don't want to do is suffer or to look outside of themselves or to strive to build up all of those relationships that the relationship with God is supposed to feed. They're not concerned about the people around them. They're concerned about hoarding. They're concerned about their costly perfumes, like the Book of Wisdom said. I'm so happy you said that line because that's what they're doing in Corinth. So he says to them, so he begins, Paul's a good salesman. So whenever he wants people to do things, he begins by buttering them up. So he says, brothers and sisters, just like you excel in every respect, in your beautiful faith, in your discourse, <laughs> your knowledge, your earnestness, in the act of love I have for you, you may excel in this gracious act also. For you know that the gracious act of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So now that you're rich, <laughs> he says, not that others should have relief while you're burdened, but that's a matter of equality. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs, so that their abundance can also supply your needs, so that there may be equality. As it is written, whoever had much did not have more, and whoever had little did not have less. So in other words, through God becoming poor, becoming like one of us, stripping himself of his glory, you became rich, both spiritually and frankly for the Corinthians, you got a lot of money. 
And if others for whom Christ has died are now suffering and struggling and cannot afford to eat, yeah, we're not saying you should starve to death, but you should really help them out. I'm reminded of St. John Chrysostom. Remember that? Who said, he had this really challenging line. He said basically to, to the Christians, this is to the individual. I'm not making a political statement. But individually, he said to Christians, look, the uh, that second cloak in your closet, it belongs to the poor. That extra food on your table, it's actually the property of the poor. They have a right to your charity. It belongs to them. And you have a responsibility to be charitable. That is the call of the Christian. So that's really what Paul is saying here. Don't become burdened. I don't want you to starve over this. But like you have an abundance and your fellow Christians are starving. And, but, and, yeah, and, and you not, better show up. And that's you better show up. very real. And again, it, this isn't about economics or politics, really. It's about the fact that, look, you're making yourselves your own gods. You're yeah. making gods out of your possessions and your riches. And if you can't even see the poor other Christian on the side of the road starving— then you've become like the wicked one in the book of wisdom. You've become like those whose end is evil. And how dare you call yourself a Christian in a certain sense? He doesn't say that, but that's kind of what he's getting at here. How dare you? How dare you mock me for my suffering and mock me for looking badly when for your sake, he said in 1 Corinthians, I didn't take a paycheck. I didn't take a wife so that I could give everything to you. And now you're mocking my suffering while you sit in your big expensive houses, enjoying all your rich food and your rich perfumes and stuff. I mean, you guys, you guys are pathetic is what he's saying, which again, I say what you will about Pope Francis, but he sounds awfully scriptural to me. Ah, uh, dude, I I am uh, agreeing, and and even in, in the midst of that section, I'm looking at wisdom again, and it says, um, he is for us burdensome to even to see, <laughs> unlike yes. unlike yes. others, his life is, is is strange ways, and and that's really where it's like that call to actually that responsiveness. I mean, that's yes. that's a word that's on my mind, and as we're yes. at this focus new staff training, is like here are these folks who are learning to be responsive. Uh, to their neighbor yeah. in need and to really bring the, the truth and what they have. Silver and gold, these kids don't have. But what yeah. they do have, I know that they're giving everything yeah. of it. And But if you have silver and gold, guess what? You got to give it. Yeah, and, and you know that famous line, Focus uses this. And I'm I'm told it was coined by Ben Akers, although I'm not sure about that. But the whole okay. idea, some go, some give by going and some go by giving. Yes. So these focus missionaries you're with, they're giving of themselves by going out to the college campuses and doing that. There's lots of people in this world that can't drop everything and go serve in a college campus, but they can go by giving to the people who are. They can yes. help support that, which is which is awesome. And that's, again, I think this is a perfect segue into the Gospels because we're not talking about these these kind of spiritual platitudes. We're not just talking about these niceties. We're talking about physical acts. The people that you're with, these hundreds of, of young people, are physically there at Ave Maria in Florida, physically gearing up to go onto college campuses, yes. to, to see these people in the eyes, to meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, to have cups of coffee, to play basketball, to physically put themselves in people's lives who need Jesus which is really the key to the whole gospel, is that Jesus sees needs or needs are presented to him and he physically responds. And there's power in his physicality. There's power in his touch. There's power in his cloaks. There's power in uh, everything about him in a, in, a, in a physical, material way, which I think is kind of beautiful. Yes. 
So, so what do we say about this? Well, first of all, what the synagogue official says to Jesus, I mean, what does he want? Not, he doesn't just say, hey, will you pray for her? Now, prayer is powerful, and we cannot ever—this is not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We cannot neglect prayer, but we also have to do something sometimes. So it, it might not be enough just to say a little prayer for the person starving on the side of the road. You actually might need to do something as well. Um, we cannot cease to pray for our world. Absolutely. We can't cease to pray for our universities. But again, these focused missionaries are stepping up and they're actually going there, um, which is a beautiful thing. This is what Jesus is showing. So he says, I, what I want you to do is come and lay your hands on her because I believe that there's power in your hands. That says this synagogue official who's, who is, uh, this isn't a priest or anything. This is a lay person who had a lot of power. And so this large crowd goes. And then I do want to talk about the woman with the hemorrhage because there's a couple really beautiful things that are going on here. Yeah. Oh, amen. Amen. I think that that's, um, yes. <laughs> so the, the, the first thing we have to say, so th this is kind of a, to understand what's going on here, we need to actually understand the book of Leviticus, which is what? where, yeah, dude. <laughs> is that a joke? <laughs> no, no. I, we talked I about just, this. I, yeah, we have talked about this, but it just surprised me again. I, I just am. I'm so fascinated with this one by by the the answering of needs from Christ, and then this this comparison of twelve. But like, I you got to keep me on Leviticus. You got to keep me a backgrounded here. Okay. Well, here here's the deal with Leviticus. So Leviticus talks about um, things that make a person clean or unclean, right? Right. Um, by the way, biblical cleanness and biblical uncleanness, you've probably heard these terms before. It has nothing to do with morality. These aren't moral things. These are um, uh, liturgical things. And so basically what, what's going on here, any contact with death or with blood or with something that's kind of a diminution of life would render you um, uh, liturgically unclean. And, so, and, and partly like as we're looking at Wisdom of Solomon, it's because we're saying, okay, you know yes, what? We want yes. to have absolutely nothing to do with death. Everything in the world is good, but then these things, they, they really come off as death, as, as some sort of participation in death rather yeah, than in life. That's it, exactly. So there's nothing wrong with this person for having... Uh, this this flow of blood or this hemorrhage, she didn't do anything wrong. But the idea is, so being unclean renders you, means you can't participate in liturgical life. So you can't go to the temple. You can't interact with that worship community, which means if this person, is, because again, what is the temple supposed to represent? The creation as it was supposed to be, in which, as wisdom says, there was no death. There was a time when death didn't exist. The temple, the tabernacle was supposed to represent that. So any blood, any death, any, if you touched a dead fly you couldn't go into the temple because death originally had no place in the created order and the temple was supposed to remind us of that but what that means is that if this woman is suffering from this hemorrhage for 12 years that isn't just it's not just the pain that she would have endured but she's literally been cut off from her worshiping community for 12 years she's cut off from the people of god she's cut off from other people, other human beings. That's the tragedy of this for 12 years. And even though she goes to these doctors, she spent everything, there's nothing that can reunite her to the people of God. There's nothing that can reunite and fix those broken relationships, right. which is what this is all about. So then yes. she sees Jesus. She touches his cloak. And I don't know if we've talked about this. There is a prophecy in the Old Testament. It's in, I believe it's Malachi chapter four, verse two. Oh. And it says that when the Messiah comes, there will be healing in his wings. 
There'll be healing in his room. It's a, it's a line in the uh, the Welcome Wagon song. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, absolutely. The of righteousness was... will come with healing in his wings. Yeah. But but here's the thing. Do you know for the Jewish people what his wings represented? Armpits? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're surprisingly close. <laughs> no, it's, I don't. It's not the armpits. You know, Jewish men would wear those long prayer shawls yeah. around their necks. And you've probably seen these. They look mm-hmm. kind of like stoles a little bit, but much longer and bigger. But they would wear these long prayer shawls that when they walked would actually flow and flap behind them. And those were commonly called a person's wings. Oh. So, so this woman isn't just randomly trying to grab whatever scrap of Jesus's clothing she can. I think this is a person who understands Malachi and says, if I can just touch his prayer shawl, the tal- the, the uh, tassels on the end of his wings, I believe that the prophet's words are true, and I will find healing in those wings that flow off of this holy man. Man. So she touches the wings of his, his prayer shawl, his talit. And she is healed. And then I love that moment. She's like, whoa, what? What's up? What happened? (laughs) Hey, I felt that. (laughs) Who did it? But again, just the idea that it is physical. She had to do something. There was actually something asked of her to step out in faith and to touch, to use her body. This broken body of hers Mm. was being asked to make one last physical effort to exert, to reach out and touch. When, When Jesus continually uses the terminology the kingdom of heaven is at hand this is the image i always see i always see this this probably a pale shriveled weak human hand reaching out to touch this prayer shawl that's what the kingdom of heaven according to jesus is we have only but to reach out and touch it and we will have access and we will have healing and then Jesus is like, well, what happened? Everyone's like, what are you talking about? What happened? Everybody's touching you. And he's like, no, no, no. This is unique. This is, I, I always want, you know, do you think Jesus actually, is he just messing with them? Like, does he know exactly what happened? Or was he like, whoa, that was kind of a weird shiver <laughs> that went out of me. Like, what uh, do you think's going on there? I think that, uh, I mean, I think he, he, uh, I think that, well, you have to know, I mean, like we have two natures of Christ. So there's, there, uh, in reality, in the, in his divine nature, he has the vision of everything. He grasps it precisely as it is. He grasps yeah. reality, but then, yeah. but his, his learning as a human is. But that doesn't is, make it magic. No, it doesn't make him magic. He just is, he's just uh, the ultimate Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. he, he is perfect in his perceptions. So you have that, but then if he's saying that, who went, who had that come out for me? He's probably teaching the apostles. He's actually teaching them about something so that, because something's coming and then they're, so then they can actually understand. And it's, it's, it's radical enough that they made note of it. Oh yeah. And, and, and Mark even saw it fit to, to write it in the gospel. For Absol- all times to have, absolutely, and to put it in the midst of this this context of this yeah. other person well, who is twelve, and that's the key here. Here, here. Oh, twelve. Ooh, twelve. Ooh. Ooh. She's she's twelve years old, and she had the flow of blood for twelve years. But so okay, so so whenever Mark does this little fancy sandwich move, right? Mm-hmm. He's trying to use the middle story usually to tell you something about the story on the outside. The, the mm. parallel, br- the bread of the sandwich, right? Yep. So here's this, this the, the story that's on the bread, so to speak, of the synagogue official, her, his daughter has physically died. Smack in the middle, there's a story about a woman. She's not physically dead, but she is sort of spiritually dead. She's cut off from her community. There's a, there's a brokenness to her relationships. There's a brokenness to her connection to the liturgical life, to the church, so to speak, right? right. To the people of God. 
Jesus heals her relationship with the people of God. And, and notice how it works. I mean, in the book of Leviticus, if someone who is clean touches someone who's unclean, then the clean person becomes unclean. Right. right? Does that make sense? Yep. So Jesus literally reverses the order of the way the world is supposed to work. The unclean person is touched by Jesus, and it's the cleanness that actually flows outward, not the other way around. She is clean because of his perfect cleanness. So she is now spiritually reunited to the people of God. She is spiritually, liturgically, communally reunited. Those relationships are restored. And then Mark jumps you back to the story of this woman, this, this girl. She's raised up from the dead. Her physical life is brought back, but that physical life is being described by the woman with the hemorrhage as a deeper spiritual reality. And the answer that Jesus finally gives to this 12-year-old who was raised from the dead is, now go and eat something. Mm-hmm. What is he trying to say? A reuniting, a being part of the spiritual community of faith, the church, the kingdom of God that Jesus is forming. What is the end once we realize we've been brought back to life? Mm. Go and eat something. Mm. It's all pointing toward the Eucharist, the Eucharist, which is what? A body risen from the dead. Dude, That's and- what the Eucharist is. It's so interesting because we see this connection directly in the upper room of Jesus doing the very same thing. When he is risen up, he shows them his wounds and he says, give me something to eat. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. You're actually seeing the pattern of what the resurrection is and he's speaking into that reality. And what does it mean to go from death to life and to eat? This is, this is the whole pattern of the Christian life. Well, and, and it comes from the whole pattern of the Jewish life because we've become these— um, escapist Gnostics, you know, in Christianity, you mentioned the whole spirit is good, material is bad. I mean, what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? It doesn't just mean, oh, now me and Jesus have a good relationship and I'll pray to him and that'll be good. No, in the Jewish mind, what does it mean to be reconciled? It means let's go sit down and have a big stinking feast with mm. food and wine and and let's celebrate together. Sitting mm-hmm. down as a family, as a community. It's not, oh, now I've been reconciled. Me and Jesus are cool now. I'm going to sit quietly in my room or sing a praise and worship song. I mean, th- those are good things. But the Jewish response, the Catholic response is great. Now let's have a feast and celebrate in our bodies. Let's have yes. a physical party together because material yes. matters. And and that matter is sacramental and sacramentalized. And, exactly. And that's the, it's just, that's the truth. It's the truth of who we are in, in our being. It's, it's, it's actually participating in saying like, no, like that, which is not being is not worth us. Uh, like, yeah. it, it, and, and only being is good. And it's, it's eschewing and rejecting that, which is the best. Yeah. So eschew it, eschew it and reject it. <laughs> yeah, baby. Wait, what are we eschewing and rejecting? Is uh, that right? Anything that is not being. Right. Eschew it, reject it. <laughs> All right, man. I know you have to leave. You got a presentation to give. So um, thank you, Father Peter, for making time for this. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back next week. We will be back next week, and we are so thankful that you tune in. And and a, a shout out to all those people who are at New Staff Training, who I did not get to say hi to. And thank you for your listening to to uh, Lanky guys. And boom. Um, a thank you to everybody else who's celebrating this be- beautiful life that we live in the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh man. See you next week. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.